Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Doogie, sit down. So welcome everyone. And uh, I'm gonna, as soon as I, I give my little two seconds here, I'm gonna go sit with Doogie. I, usually he just demands that I sit with him. Like, you know, he's, he's like, I, he owns me, so. Um, anyway, we're really excited about today. It's a very special session. And um, the, only, the only piece that I wanna add, I always, um, tell a couple of stories. It's, um, you know, I'm going to talk about more about our fundraising campaign, but in a nutshell, um, we need about 400 people to donate $100 a month for this to go. That's, that's the fundraising goal. And I'll talk more about the details, but, um, you know, it's a, it's really, it reminded me of a story that the professor told me early on when we got married. He, I don't know if he's going to remember this, but he used to tell me stories about when he would be studying in the halakhas and where there would always be certain people that would stay in the mosque and pray while the other members of the halakha went out and did whatever they would be doing. So you had like this core group of people asking for God's help and core people going out and serving God. Second story, um, I remember, and we actually have, um, I mean, welcome to the global community because some of the people, we, we have someone as far away as Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, or Bosnia, uh, Finland, the UK, um, you know, all across the US, um, I think Canada. So we, we have quite representation here. Um, and I remember when we, again, first when we first got married, um, it was the time of the Bosnian War. And the professor was so just offended and upset and just, you know, completely torn up about it that he literally wanted to jump on a plane and go fight in Bosnia. Now, if you know anything about the professor's health, you know that the second he'd step off the plane, he'd probably have an asthma attack and someone would take him out. And, you know, so I was like, okay, this is not a good idea to go and fight, although he really wanted to go. And, you know, I said, listen, you know, even like the, even the Quran says, you know, some people have to stay behind. You have to do your part in, you know, making sure that, that, you know, you move the, the, um, the knowledge forward and let the people who have the physical strength and the ability to fight go fight so that everyone does what they need to do. And so I sort of see this project as very much like that. You know, we have someone who has dedicated their life studying the Quran and has the ability to push all of our knowledge forward. And all of our job is to get behind that and make it happen. So um, I really hope that inshallah we can all pray and we can all kind of gather everyone that we know um, to support this project. You know, I love the idea where, you know, we've had a lot of people ask about what they can do to help loved ones who have already passed. Well, this is a wonderful way to donate and give the hasanet to that person, and they will continue to earn hasanet, you know, forward. So that's a really powerful gift, and I, I hope that that would be um, something that would convince, you know, more people to get behind it. So 400 people doesn't sound like it's not doable. I mean, it seems like we could do that. So. We just have to make it happen. But um, so with that, anyway, thank you for joining us. And inshallah, I'm looking forward to a really wonderful session. Um, Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Uh, uh, you have to tell me if, if uh, if anyone says anything or if I... Okay. Because I, I can't hear, of course. Um. 
I think for now we'll just hold comments until the Q&A and then I can relay them. So unless you want to interact in between. Okay. Well, uh, uh, yeah, no, it's good. Are you okay? Can everybody see? Um, okay. All right. So you can see, they can see you through the laptop and you can also see them up there, right? Assalamu alaikum everyone. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Allahumma shahli sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Amri wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Amri wa sallam. 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 I'll start out with an introduction about what this is and a word about the methodology and then the uh, sort of the goals, um, the hopes, um, and then inshallah we'll, we'll talk about the one of the solar as an example, if you will, as a prototype of uh, or as a demonstration of um, this project and what it entails. I hardly need to underscore the importance of the Quran as the center for what Islam is and what Islam ought to be and what Islam was and what Islam will be. The Quran is the central text, the text that anchored the entire Islamic message that is the heart and soul of what is Islam and what is Muslim within the Quran are the boundaries for what, how we can identify a Muslim, um, and also then what the direction and trajectory of that Muslim is. I hardly also need to make the case that the Quran for contemporary Muslims uh, is not where it should be. Uh, it, it is it, it the Muslims for a variety of reasons have lost touch with the Quran and uh, it, to it, it is not the central type of text that directs their lives and shapes their value system and that helps or contributes in significant ways to shaping our consciousness and our understanding of the world and the way we relate to the world. There are many, many reasons for this, and I don't want to get into them because that will take us too far. One of the things that um, I've lived with 
for a long time and is um, well before we move on to this if you think of from the time that the the Quran is revealed and the Quran is finalized as a text within a defined clear text with defined boundaries contained within a a a, a, a definable covers so and that of course we know happens quite early on in the islamic message and for muslims we believe that it even happens from the time of the prophet from whether it's a historical perspective or a theological perspective, um, I'm not sure that the difference between the two is that significant, unless you take you know some of the wild theories about the Quran that aren't out there. But these wild theories um, are very conjectural and don't have much that supports them. But what is fascinating is that from the time that the that the, the Quran becomes defined in Muslim life, to just illustrate the type of impact it had within Muslims, by the time that I was, you know, by in the sixties, there still remained a quite. A widespread practice that it was centuries old of thinking that all literacy begins with studying the Quran. So for centuries, Muslims would begin the process of literacy by teaching and absorbing the Quran. And for a very large number of Muslims, this would also include memorizing the Quran but even those people who were not going to become uh, scholars, or not going to become fuqaha, were not going to become jurists, even those people who were learning literacy, becoming literate, uh, because they were going to become state functionaries, or they were going to become um, uh, um, uh, um, business people engaged in the process of commerce and import and export, even for uh, people who were going to f enter many vocations in life, literacy always began with the Quran. And it was after studying the, 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 the Quran, uh, you would then go on to become a medical doctor or to become an engineer or to become uh, whatever the many jobs and many professional guilds that existed in the pre-modern world. And the, the core thing that is fascinating is that for many centuries, Muslims understood that at the heart of the educational process is this close and intimate engagement with the Quran, and then the diversification of professions begins. Of course, that practice starts weakening significantly during the colonial era, but even after colonialism, it continued to weaken 
all those surviving in 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 the madrasas um, in rather inconsistent and um, very spotty fashion, and the quality control also deteriorated in madrasas throughout the Muslim world. Um, we saw increasingly in the Muslim world madrasas attracting those who, to a very large extent, who could not afford to go to um, regular schools. And so both the quality and quantity of madrasas and Quranic literacy deteriorated very seriously throughout the Muslim world. Uh, till we reached our day and age, where it is not unusual, by the way, to find Muslims um, all around the Muslim world, and not limited to one region or another, um, who practically have zero Quranic literacy. I mean, they, they might be much more comfortable in the English language than in... Um, the Quranic language, their exposure to the Quran might even be more alien than their exposure exposure to Shakespeare. Um, a lot of educated Muslims through their educational process have had a greater amount of exposure to Shakespeare who is not embedded in their theology, in their um, religiosity at all. Uh, but nevertheless, the Quran has become a foreign text. And it's a foreign text not because we are unable to memorize surahs that we recite in prayer, but because we don't know how to read the Quran or how to unpack the world of meanings and relate to the text in um, in a way that shapes our consciousness and shapes our emotions and shapes our intellectual paradigms. Okay, so one of the, the, the things that was of great interest to me in uh, the, my, my own Quranic journey is how to unpack the chapters of the Quran. Why is a chapter a chapter? We know from various narratives in the Sunnah that some surah, for instance, um, have 90% of the ayat, the 90% of the verses in a particular surah uh, might have been revealed in Medina. But 10% were revealed in Mecca. But an, an example is Surah Al-Hadid, for instance. Surah Al-Hadid, the, the iron, uh, is considered a Medinian surah. However, there are some verses in Surah Al-Hadid that were revealed in Mecca. Now, the gap between the, the verses that were revealed in Mecca and the verses that were revealed in Medina uh, is, in the case of Surah Al-Hadid, is about six years. So you're talking about a substantial gap in time. But yet, 
the Prophet when it came time to organize Surah Al-Hadid and say, well, this is how Surah Al-Hadid will exist forever. The Prophet instructed that these verses that were revealed in Mecca be placed in Surah Al-Hadid, which is a Medinian surah. Everyone follow what I'm saying? Anyone confused? I'm going to repeat it one more time. There are surah that from beginning to end were revealed in either Mecca or Medina. That's straightforward. The, the, the entire surah was revealed from beginning to end in either Mecca, the, the Meccan period, or the Medinian period, either before the Hijrah, before the migration, or after the migration. However, there are surah where Part of the surah was revealed during the Meccan period and part was revealed during the Medinian period. And there is a substantial gap of time between the revelation that took place before the migration, before the Hijra in Mecca, and the revelation that took place after the Hijra in Medina. But when it came time to organize the Quran, the Prophet ﷺ instructed that these particular verses be placed in this particular surah, even if there was a gap of time between the ayat that were revealed in Mecca and the ayat that were revealed in Medina. This begs the question, why is a chapter in the Quran a chapter? Put it differently, if I would have played, um, what is the, that thing where you switch the places of things, um, you know, you, you, you re, um, what is the word I'm looking for? A Rubik's Cube? <laughs> no. Um, um, no, but, yeah, but, okay. Bingo or something. Uh, what did you say? Bingo. Bingo or a Rubik's Cube or a... Um, not quite. Yeah, well, yeah, sort of... Yeah. Maybe... Monty. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> well, okay, it's, 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 we so, yeah, yeah. The, the switching around, you know. If I would switch around ayat from Surah Al-Baqarah and put them in Surah Al-Nur and take ayat from Surah Al-Nur and put them... Um, in Surah Al-Mu'minun, would that alter the meaning? Would that affect the meaning? And especially for so many Muslims, when they read the Quran, uh, it seems to them that much of the Quran is quite repetitive, that it says the same things more or less over and over. And again, is there a coherent thematic unity within the structure of each surah, so that when we say a surah, it is in fact very much like a chapter, that you cannot alter the structure of the surah without significantly impacting the meaning of the surah. That has been a, a, a lifelong 
engagement and a lifelong question for me. Why did Allah make a surah as it is? Why does it, for instance, why do we have five chapters in the Quran that are known as the musabbihat, the the chapters that that start out with Subhanallah? Um, is there something distinctive about the five chapters that are musabbihat? Is there something particular and specific? that would make these chapters start with subhanallah as opposed to all the different other beginnings that you find um, elsewhere in the Quran. Um, I'll come. I'll come back to this, uh, but before I, I I launched into all of this, I should have welcomed you guys, and um, I I just forgot. Um, uh, inshallah, the the day will come where we can meet in person. Um, inshallah, uh, I I should say that. Uh, when it came to selecting the people who would be on screen, uh, I apologize for uh, the other people that uh, I could not select because uh, screen reality is limited and we, we already were forced to um, accommodate more people than I thought I was going to accommodate. Initially, I thought we'll just have five people excuse me, on screen. And when it came to picking people, um, I did discriminate in favor of women. Um, so I implemented an, uh, sort of an affirmative action program where I gave clear preference to women. Um, and I also was forced to give preference to younger people rather than older people. So I again, I apologize to the people that I couldn't um, uh, accommodate. It doesn't mean that they're excluded. It, it, it just means that I don't see them on screen and they don't get first opportunity to ask questions, inshallah, when we, when we get to that point. But they can still write their questions and uh, we'll try to accommodate them. I, I, I do have, for pedagogical reasons and for ideological reasons, I have a preference for women. Uh, I think women um, have the ability to affect the future of Islam. Uh, if you look at real-life examples, um, it is the leadership of women that... Uh, in this day and age that often makes a great deal of difference uh, and a, a weak front uh, it, it, on the gender side it, it, if it, for any group of people any, any um, people that are unable to properly 
tap into the power that uh, women have in our day and age, uh, they're not going to get very far. They're not going to progress very much. Um, uh, in this day and age, the, there are so many distractions for men, uh, for the male gender, uh, so much frivolous activity and so much whimsical things that waste the energy of uh, the male gender. Um, so it's not a coincidence that the people who ran to Congress and got elected were two Muslim women. And um, it, 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 there has actually been quite a bit of quite a bit of sociological work done about this. Sort of the why in this day and age of information and saneness, women have a great deal of potential. Also, we we have a long history. Uh, uh, as Muslims, of discriminating and suppressing women, so I, I feel morally obligated to. And as to young people, you know, it, it's obvious the future of any ummah is in its young people. Uh, the older you get, the more set in your ways you become, um, and the less energetic. That's just the sunnah of Allah in, in creation. Uh, you know, me, I, as a 20-year-old, I had a very different energy level and a very different level of zeal and ability than me in my 50s. And so, uh, th that, that's... Uh, the other thing is, my, as Grace emphasized, and as I talked about in the last... Um, Q&A uh, session, this project to share the, the result of my long-term engagement with the Quran, it, to be done properly and effectively and to get through the entire Quran, um, at least if I could afford a year uh, of leave where I'm on leave from school and doing nothing but the 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 Quranic Holocaust uh, that would be ideal I it's very difficult to imagine how I could do this while while teaching uh, because of just the, the numerous obligations that uh, I have um, but there was a further idea and they, I'm I've already talked to, to Grace about this, is that if this thing about taking off a year to teach the Quran, I am at this stage in life where you start thinking very seriously about um, when you meet Allah and you are asked about what you've done with your knowledge and... Um, so you you get to a certain stage in life where you, the training of others and the preparing of others to carry the torch, so to speak, um, you don't just leave a legacy of written books, but you leave a legacy of living books, uh, human beings. And in fact, many the, the way I was raised was that 
to always think that the value of a teacher is in what a teacher leaves behind in terms of students rather than uh, anything else, the, the, the quality of a student that a teacher leaves. Uh, I have not been, uh, to be quite honest with you, I have not been very successful on that front. I, I have not left a, a very large body of students that, um, uh, and I'm not even sure that I've left any body of students. I mean, I'm, there are some, of course, clear exceptions, people that I've, that I've had long associations with and at least contributed to their training in one form or another. Only Allah knows the best uh, to what extent. But anyway, the idea was is that during that year, hopefully we can invite two, three, or four people that would do, that would undertake a great sacrifice on their part, and that is to take a year off their lives and come to LA. Um, our hope is that we'd raise funds to be able to pay for their lodging and their food and at a minimum, and that for a year, for that year, uh, they would train very closely with me on the Quran. But this would require complete dedication. And the reason um, that it, it would have to be one-on-one -on -one and it would have to be in person and it would have to be that these people would come and live close to where I am uh, for a year is that for this type of project, I don't need smart people. I need wise people. And wisdom is not just the product of IQ. Wisdom is the product of that um, remarkable combination between the heart and the mind. And the, the heart and the mind strike the mizan between the, the, these two. There are a lot of people who are extremely sharp and very studious, but are idiots in every sense of the word. And there are a lot of people that have very big hearts, but absolutely no power in intelligence-wise. Uh, they're not studious at all. And as a result, they're fools. Um, they're all heart. But they learn nothing from the the experiences of others as documented in writing. For that year, what these individuals would do, they would prepare the chapters that we will discuss. The, the, so they read them, they prepare them. I meet, would meet with them daily or once every two days uh, to discuss the types of things that I will not have time to go into um, in the broader halakas, and also, and this is not any less important, uh, also to do spiritual exercises preparing um, the chapters. So they would do dhikr. Each surah in the Quran has its own dhikr, and they would regularly focus on developing themselves spiritually and and intellectually and their intimacy with the Quran. 
And after that year, hopefully, um, they would go on to, to, you know, I pray to, to take the message further than I could have ever taken it. And that would be my sincere hope. Uh, you know, of course, all of this is, is at this point a dream because we don't have the funds. Um, and I, I um, you know, I'm, I'm teach, as, as it stands now, I'm scheduled to teach next year. Um, but I, I think that perhaps the hearing loss is a strong alarm system that, you know, it's, it, you can't just say, well, I don't do it this year, it will be next year. Um, life is just too unpredictable. So that is the, the dream. Um, to do it the way that it should properly be done. Uh, knowledge that you don't sacrifice for um, is knowledge that you don't learn. Uh, it, knowledge that comes cheaply. We human beings, our psychology, is that we have a tendency not to respect anything that doesn't cost us. Uh, and that's not necessarily bad. It's just that's the way our psychologies are as, as human beings. We don't value what comes free. And the way that we learn to cherish something is by coming to appreciate its scarcity and its cost. Think of the way that even when you were a child, the way you were taught value by your parents is to learn that things have value because they're not necessarily replaced, or if replaced, they are replaced at a cost. And as a child, if you had not learned this lesson, that's exactly how you grow up to be spoiled rotten. And think of any child that is spoiled rotten, they, they're insensitive, they, can, they can't understand the feelings of others, and they take everything for granted. And they take everything for granted because they were not indoctrinated with the idea of cost and sacrifice. Anything that costs you, that costs you energy, exhaustion, financial resources, substantial time, is something that impacts your psychology and impacts your intellect at a different level of consciousness than something that doesn't cost you. That is why the sacrifice of taking a year out of your life is a moral cost that needs to be incurred. Not just because the material is intensive and not just because going through the entire Quran in one year uh, and becoming thoroughly comfortable with why each chapter is the way it is, 
why, what were the circumstances that led to the revelation of each chapter in the Quran? What are the major theological slash philosophical slash jurisprudential debates about each chapter in the Quran? Uh, plus the dhikr that is necessary to surround the educational process that, that, that defines the engagement with each chapter that dhikr brings the element of Allah's barakah because without Allah's barakah, without Allah's blessing, the it is impossible for the Quran to unlock its secrets and to unlock its keys. If you don't have Allah's barakah, you can read the Quran a million times. I mean, think of Orientalists. Montgomery Watt, I'm sure, has gone through the Quran I used to know Patricia Crone, the late Patricia Crone, quite well, and I knew that she, I know that she read the Quran many times. Um, but so what? She's not reading it with barakah. She's not reading it with that element of Allah's touch, Allah's madad, Allah's aid. And so her, nothing will penetrate, and nothing did penetrate to Patricia Crone's heart. Nothing penetrated Montgomery Watt's heart. Um, I used to be a student of Avram Yudovich at, at Princeton, or you know, one of my teachers. Um, I know from my long conversations with him and Michael Cook, nothing ever penetrated their heart. Um, I have a colleague here at, um, uh, at UCLA whose specialty is the translation of Arabic text, and he knows Arabic quite well. Uh, but without the element of barakah, you, your heart is locked up. And so that dhikr is critical to the process of engagement, and it mirrors my own long engagement with the Qur'an itself. Okay. Can we see if anyone has any questions about the... The, yes. Either the halakha or the the more intimate deal. Does anybody have any questions? Feel free to unmute yourself and. So how do I sign up for the more intimate one? How do I sign up for the more intimate one? This is Serene. Oh, 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 uh, I should put you my, my glasses. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm blind without my glasses, so I, I actually can't see anything. Okay, who asked that? This is uh, Serene. Uh, uh, well, it, it, you just let us know at this point. I, I think we would be able to accommodate um, at maximum would be four people. Uh, 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 because, of course, we need to raise the money. Um, to raise the money to at least uh, pay for the, the those for their their lodgings and their food uh but still it would be a substantial sacrifice on your part because you're putting a whole year of your life on hold and you know i don't know if if you're going to be unhappy with the food we supply and you know <laughs> want to go to westwood and party up party or something like yeah, that right. um whatever um so yeah I, just, I mean so just letting us know that's one and and then doing dua that sincere dua that we are able to raise the money uh i 
I, I mean, and I don't say this to be an alarmist. It's like, you don't know if you're, I don't know if I'm going to be around the next year. And I just feel increasingly pressured um, to unload what is within this brain uh, to people that I pray can carry the torch forward. Uh, it, it's... Our our tradition and 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 if you truly knew the Quran, you would understand why it shaped an entire civilization. You would understand that it is a truly a miraculous text in every sense of the word. Um, and then if you understood the Islamic tradition, and it's a broader issue, you'd understand that as traditions come. And note, as traditions come, so as placed within the context of other traditions, Jewish tradition, Christian tradition, Buddhist tradition, Hindu tradition, this is a remarkably rich and nuanced tradition. And far more nuanced, even compared to the post-industrial revolution tradition of modernity. Uh, I think the tradition of modernity is already um, exposing its major flaws and deficiencies. And I think that humanity will inevitably look back to these older traditions to anchor itself in meaning, because the level of alienation among humanity is profound. Uh, modern philosophies had, have not yielded the type of anchoring for human beings. And for human beings for thousands of years were anchored in these complex religious traditions that mitigate, that, that uh, negotiate the sacred and the temporal. And we're already seeing that. I mean, if you travel in Europe and you travel in, look at the way Russia has gone back to its own um, um, Christian tradition and negotiating that tradition within modernity as it tries to anchor itself in a, in a realm of meaning. It is inevitable, but the things, the way things stand now, when Muslims look back to that tradition, I'm not sure that Muslims know what to anchor themselves in. And that's extremely unfortunate. So that's, the hope is to, that would be part of responding to this and at least doing what what one can so that when you face Allah, uh, in due time, you have something to stand on. You, you have something to defend yourself with. Uh, when you say, I've tried what I can, that it's actually legitimate um, and not just rhetoric. Any other questions? Everyone sure? All sure? Okay.
So, the journey with the Quran, methodologically, there are two key things that for 30 years I have um, for 30 years have been of central significance for me. And unlike my other tafsir halakas, and, and I'm I, I've said this before, the, the the tafsir that I've learned is a line by line tafsir. And you and it's fifty percent of it is linguistic. Fifty percent of it is knowing Arabic grammar and knowing uh, you know what is the Arab? What is the um, grammatical structure of every word in every ayah? And that grammatical structure often defines the meaning. And then learning what all the different schools of thought said about the meaning of every ayah in every surah. And when then you do a traditional tafsir, which I do in my other halaqa, you basically are communicating what all the different schools of thought, what all the different main scholars said about the, what every ayah means. And, um, and that's pretty much what the, the traditional tafsir, and the, the, which is a, to a large extent a hermeneutic tafsir, but what had engaged me, I tried with greater levels of success in my later life than in my earlier life to unshackle myself from the, um, I don't want to say burdens because I don't think tradition is a burden. I think tradition is a blessing. But um, from maybe the habits, the habits um, uh, of tradition and to step back and to try to understand these soar the way that they could have been possibly received at the time of revelation. From my reading in history, I know, and there is a considerable amount of evidence, that Arabs who their abilities in poetry and their their comfort with eloquence, uh, Arabic eloquence and Arabic grammar was profound. And the Quran impacted them at an emotive and an intellectual and spiritual and moral levels in ways that for the modern Muslim are very difficult to understand. I mean, when you find people who listen to the Quran, and after having listened to the Quran, they are practically willing to sacrifice all their wealth, uh, sacrifice their, their their stability, their future, their careers, travel to a, an entirely different polity, uh, maybe even fight family members in wars, uh, become thoroughly centered around the idea of uh, trying to invite their own families and loved ones to salvation, the Quran had an impact on them that is very hard for us to reclaim or to even internalize. Um, 
just because you are an Arab and you know Arabic doesn't mean that you have the type of relationship with the Quran that existed 1400 years ago. Uh, in many ways, growing up as an Arab has become an impediment, um, not, the, not the opposite. Uh, because you grow up surrounded with hearing Quranic phrases repeated dogmatically and rhetorically. That, so for instance, our, the Quran says that those who, when are confronted with calamity, repeat, Hasbi Allah wa Ni'mal Wakil. Now, Hasbi Allah wa Ni'mal Wakil means Allah is the true aid, the sufficient aid, and the true ally. Modern day Muslims repeat Hasbi Allah. We even have we sort of mock it by call it Hasbana. Uh, that modern day Muslims, whenever they 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 confront an injustice that they don't plan to do anything about at all, they just say Hasbi Allah now al bakil What used to be a statement that signified power and signified empowerment and confidence and uh, dignity has become a statement that signifies the exact opposite. If you've grown up an, an, an Arabic speaker, for a modern Arab to read that Hasbi Allah wa Na'am al-Wakil and have it affect their heart the way that affected the hearts of earlier Muslim generations uh, it's 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 completely alien. Same thing. Think of the 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 expression "Insha'Allah," right? Uh, and that is not just for Arabs. That's maybe for all Muslims when it comes to "Insha'Allah." When the Prophet ﷺ neglected to say "Insha'Allah" in in just one event, and that led to a major point of crisis um, in which the prophet was denied revelation and in fact I'll even use the word embarrassed uh, before um, Qureshi leaders because inshallah just saying inshallah is so significant when you intend for something to happen, see the way that we relate to inshallah as Muslims today. It, it, we've completely emptied it of its normative powers and of its signifiers. And so part of that inquiry is what did that, what did a, the, why do we have 114 chapters? Why not half of that? Why not more? Why did the revelation stop where it stopped? Why did it begin where it began? Um, is there a coherence to each chapter that we can say that each chapter in the Quran communicated a particular message 
or a particular set of messages, messages that other chapters did not communicate. So does each chapter, in fact, you know, one of the first things you do if you ever become a published scholar is that one of the most important things is that each chapter in your book says something different. If an editor, if you have an, a, a good editor or a good publisher, and you notice that the chapters are not saying anything different, they'll, they'll tell you, well, this is not publishable because you basically repeat the same material over and over in each chapter, or these two chapters have to be merged together, or you've got to delete this particular chapter. It, this is just the ABCs of the formation of text and text that can be effective and powerful. I've always felt that the key to understanding the Qur'an is the Fatha. Why is that? We know that the Fatha, in terms of order of revelation, it was revealed either number five or number seven in terms of order of revelation. But we also know that from the time that the Fatha is revealed, it immediately occupies that central position, other than the fact that it's called the Fatha, other than the fact that it's called the, the, the opening, the unlock, the key, the, um, the beginning of the journey, um, there is so much in the, in the tradition that emphasizes the place of the Fatha as the beginning of your journey with the Qur'an, that if you don't have the blessings of the Fatha, in the same way that if you haven't learned to read the Fatha, your prayer is invalid. You can't have a Salah without the Fatha. Uh, if you forget to say the Fatha in Iraqa, then the entire prayer is negated. It's not, you can't do Sujood al-Sahu because you forgot to say the Fatha. The prayer is void, and you have to repeat the entire prayer. You can forget to say a surah. You, you know, you read the Fatha, and you say, Allahu Akbar, you go into Rukua, and you forget to read surah, forget to read Allahu Ahad, or whatever, and then you do sujood al-sahu, and it's fine. But you, that, you can't do that with the Fatha. If you forget the Fatha, the prayer is in, invalidated. Now, the Fatha... And I've said this in, 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 in the past, but it's worth repeating. From the time of revelation, it is positioned as if the document of delegation, the, the, the text that delegates, that delegates to Muslims what they are and what they ought to be and what they ought to aspire for through their journey in life. It tells you to begin in the name of God, the most merciful, defining that God, anything that is not engaged in, with, in Allah's name, with Allah's name, and the defining attributes of that name is bottle. It's wrong. 
to, to the extent that we cannot kill anything. And, and, and a lot of Muslims have forgotten this, the, these ethics that, you know, if, if you can't kill a fly without saying Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, or you should not, you can't see a cockroach and kill it without saying Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Uh, you can't eat without Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. You can't pray without Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Bismillah ar-Rahman, you can't do wudu without Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, you are saying, I am doing it in Allah, with Allah's permission. The reason that the authority comes to me from the most compassionate, the most merciful. And as a result, if you don't do it compassionately and mercifully, you're in trouble. I mean, that's a deep, that's an old, old theological point, but Muslims forget the extent to which it was anchored, again, in their theology and in their law. Um, yeah, because Muslims built an empire and empires do, you know, engage in politics and politics does very ugly things and very harsh things and so on. But theologically and jurisprudentially, that remained the, the case that you as a Muslim must remind yourself and relate to the cosmos by saying the reason I am doing this, or as I do this, if it is, if it's consistent with Allah's license, then it's it is okay. But if it is inconsistent with Allah's license and Allah's mercy, you're in trouble. You you can't chop down a tree without saying Bismillah Rahman Rahim. If you do, you're committing a serious sin. I know that the post-Wahhabi Islam, uh, we, we've lost so much of that. We're not raised with that in the way that uh, in the 16th century or 17th century, you, you know, you, you, you would hear your parents say that all the time. I, when I was growing up, I, I still had that in meaning my grandmother and my grandfather would stay, still say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim before they go after a cockroach or before they uh, kill flies or be, before they get cut. I mean, I still remember very, very distinctly my uncle finding uh, a grasshopper, uh, not a grasshopper, a lizard, a lizard in, in the home. And... My uncle struck the lizard without saying Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, and my mother was so upset she wouldn't talk to him the rest of the night. The, the idea that you took the life of something while neglecting, and she and I still remember her saying, you know, is this the way uh, our father raised us? Is this the way our father raised us? Now, of course, Look at how much we've lost, because I am sure that that strikes many of you as foreign. But if you wouldn't have needed to be born that far in the past to actually have this be very natural, and you would know this as, yeah, of course, you know, that's obvious. You can't cut a flower without Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. You... Because you do it in Allah's authority, in Allah's name. 
So the Bismillah Rahman Rahim, the Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, that your relationship with everything in existence is acknowledging Allah's gratitude, the humility that comes from the acknowledgement of Allah. Of the, if you don't have that humility vis-a-vis -vis existence, you are a curse upon existence. Because human hubris will inflict an enormous amount of damage upon existence unless you have that humility. Unless you understand that anything you do, you do it by permission from the divine, and that divine is most compassionate, most merciful, so you can't invoke that permission to commit cruelty. And that all that comes to you and all that comes against you is interacted with within a relationship of gratitude to the one that you should be grateful for. And what Iman is built on is gratitude. That you either have the humility of being a grateful human being or you, don't, you haven't learned gratitude. Think of people that you've encountered in life that are either grateful or ungrateful. Think of the ugliness of ingratitude and the beauty of gratitude. If you've ever been kind to someone who repaid your kindness with betrayal or with... Uh, think of the ugliness. And, and so recognizing the morality of gratitude... And again, in terms of virtues, we forget that gratitude is a moral virtue and that when Allah tells us, teaches us to be grateful towards Allah, Allah is not just teaching us an ethical value towards the divine, but an ethical value that will define our existence, our relationship with one another. And much of human cruelty and much of human harshness is because of the lack of gratitude, the lack of this basic kindness where we recognize our dependence on one or another and we recognize our, the morality of our intercourse as human beings. Okay, well, anyway, so go through the fatha and... If, if, inshallah, if that plan of doing the training that I'm dreaming of with three or four people, um, this is something that I would actually do with them, where we go through the fatha and we... Uh, um, um, there was... Um, the fatha is a very powerful dhikr. And... You don't know the power of that dhikr till you spend a night doing dhikr using the fatha. You repeat the fatha over and over and over for a few hours, preferably before fajr, between Isha and fajr. Preferably closer to um, 
the hours that precede sunrise or the precede the, the coming of Fajr, not sunrise, the coming of Fajr, while focusing, you don't just repeat it. Every time you repeat it, you insist, I want to focus on thinking through the full connotations of what does it mean to invoke the name of a most compassionate and most merciful God? What are the total implications of this? What does it mean to learn the virtue of gratitude as a central virtue in human existence? What does it mean to, when you say, grammatically, what this saying, what what it means is that it is you, it is you that we choose to worship and it is you that we choose to rely on. The implicit meaning of this is that you as a human being, you will worship something and you will rely on something. You will سَتَعَبُدُ وَتَسْتَعِينُ so of those things that you will inevitably, by default, worship and rely on, you choose the divine, you choose Allah to worship and to rely on. Human beings will either, if they don't worship idols and they don't worship the sun and they don't worship the, the four elements of, of, of nature, they don't worship wind, fire, water, and whatever the the uh, all the new agey religions. Uh, they don't worship, uh, you know, their guiding spirits. Oh, my mother looks after me. My 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 dead mother looks after me. My dead father looks after me. Um, my guy, my spiritual guide looks after me. You. If you don't worship your ancestors, you don't worship some imagined spirit that sends you you know, that loves you and takes care of you, you will worship. And if you don't worship, you will worship material wealth. But even if you don't worship that, you will end up worshiping yourself in a form of self-idolatry. And the remarkable thing is, uh, well, very quickly, you know, I I remember years ago where we had sort of a very interesting interaction with... um, Robert Unger, uh, an American philosopher, and you know he made this entire thing. But, but I, you know, consistent with a lot of his writings. His main argument is, uh, you know, he, he, human beings are alienated and 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 uh, uprooted and disinherited, and the level of alienation that modern humans are confronting have led to horrible things. Have led to 
things like drugs and alcoholism and suicide rates and depression rates uh, have led to a great de- to to social ailments like racism and um, sexual harassment and human trafficking and uh, um, uh, forced sex and uh, trafficking in, in, in human beings and sex industry have led to a lot of horrible things. Robert Unger says, well, the, the solution uh, was, is religion. However, however, he doesn't believe in God. So what is the solution then? Secular religion, where human beings must become the God. So he's trying to, he says, you know, we can tap into the best that religion has to offer, but because religion is false, then we can just worship ourselves. You know, this is classic Nietzschean philosophy. I mean, he's sort of just regurgitating Nietzsche, um, you know, and, and regurgitating Ayn Rand. And we all know what Nietzsche has resulted in and what Ayn Rand has resulted in. I mean, if you want to see the, the byproduct of Ayn Rand's philosophy, look at the neocons. Look at the, the, you know, the New Jesus movement, the family in Washington, D.C. Uh, if you uh, look at the privileges of the rich. And so, you know, I got into, into it with him. Uh, you, you know, this... this hijacking of religion, you know, I think it's more foolish than simply saying there's no hope. We, we human beings just have to, we, there is no God and let's just deal with the consequences. But to try to solve that by doing exactly what Mustaqim has alerted me centuries ago, that you're going to end up just trying to worship yourself. It's just a, a, a remarkable uh, prophecy, and anyway, so until we get in the Fatha, this this magical moment when the Fatha tells us "Ihdina Sirat al Mustaqim," and we read it, we recite it all the time, you know, guide us to the straight path. But the straight path is the path of moral virtue. It's a path of beauty. It's a path of goodness. It is the path of understanding the Quran. When you study the Quran to say, I want to understand Allah's message in an intimate and clear way, that's Ihdina Sirat al Mustaqim. And when you say, that's the other side of the Sirat al Mustaqim. You are either a person who is a conscientious engagement with all that is represented by divine virtue, or you're not. Zikr through the Fatha, the the long life, there was a Sufi, I'm I'm blanking out on her name. Um, She lived at the time of Ibn Arabi, I don't remember her name now, but... um, there are even reports that she was one of Ibn Arabi's teacher. Um, she was a Sufi um, um, master who founded a tariqa um, based on the fatha. I mean, her entire tariqa would, her, their entire dhikr processes was 
through, you know, they would have a year, a day saying Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Uh, then the next day it would be uh, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Then the, the next, the third day it would be Ihdin al-Sirat al-Mustaqim and so on and so forth. Um, anyway, it's a very interesting Sufi tariqah. I mean, they didn't survive after Al-Andalus fell. Um, we lose trace of the their their members and and so on. Anyway, that fatha and reading the entire Quran within in light of the methodology of the fatha is what led me to this conviction that each chapter in the Quran has a central or either a theme or themes that are unique and particular to each chapter in the Quran. Much more can be said about this, as I say, I mean, I'm, I'm summarizing 30 years of life in minutes. Um, you know, I, I wish I could share with you the moments of anxiety, the moments of agony, the moments of hope, the moments of tears, the moments of smiles, the moments of exhilaration, of excitement, the, 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 the supplications, the begging, uh, the praying. The, uh, when you sit for hours and say, Allah, Allah, please open my eyes, allow me to see, I, 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 Everything in the every fiber in my being tells me there is something to see. It's just I am not seeing it. Help me see it. Um, so that is what began this journey. What accompanied this journey. Um, oh, and then the second element. How did the names of the Suar come about? You know, this is a very fascinating issue. Because there are two points of view that you learn from the tradition. One that says that the names of the Suar came from the Prophet ﷺ, that in the same way that they were Qira'at, did we lose anyone? In the same way that there are qira'at in the Quran, that the Prophet ﷺ said each surah, that's the name of each surah, and that some surah, the Prophet ﷺ authorized several alternative names. Uh, so Surah Muhammad, for instance, is also known as Surah al-Shari'ah. Um, and other examples that we could get into. But the second main opinion is that no, the Suar, the names of the Suar didn't come from the that nothing authentic has been reported on this matter, but rather it was the earliest generation of Muslims, the companions and the tabi'in, the companions and the successors, who named each surah. Some believe 
that the names of the surah is a form of divine revelation that Allah wanted the surah to be named Al-Nur, Al-Mu'minun, Al-Baqarah and, or Ali Umran or Maryam and so it was named uh, or the second says that no, it was the consensus of the earliest generation of Muslims that that should be the name of the surah What was far more significant for me is to understand well why whether it was the, the Prophet or the successor the companions and the successors that picked the name of the Surah, what what was the significance of that? What is the significance of the name? What I was taught in public school growing up was that, well, the way that surahs were named was basically they picked the most unusual word in each surah and that became the name. So the word Baqarah in Surah Al-Baqarah was distinctive. So that's what became the name of the surah. Or Ali Umran, that was distinctive. So that became the name of the surah. That didn't make sense to me because if you go, to, if you study the Quran for each surah where they say that they picked the most distinctive word to become the name of the surah, I could identify a number of other distinctive words that could have been the name of the surah with equal validity. I mean, it, it, to say that, well, it's just the, the it's, that word seemed to fit because it was unusual. There, were, there are a lot of problems with that type of argument. And again, if, if, um, if we were doing this in the year-long thing, we would go through and unpack it because I want to share that research with, pe- with people. I mean, it, it, I don't know. An intellect is very valuable. It's not necessarily just my intellect. All of our intellects are very valuable. And there are two types of people. There are people that create communities, societies, institutions, that exploit the, be- the 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 talents and the intellects communally. The intellects are like the 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 fruit that Allah gives us, like the mineral sources that Allah gives us. They are a source of richness and value and wealth, true wealth, not just the intellects but talents. When Allah created Bach's talent or Mozart's talent or Beethoven's talent, I am sure that at the same moment Allah created a Beethoven in Cairo and Allah created a Mozart in Cairo and Allah created a Bach in Cairo. But the difference is those people were able to invest in the talents and allow these talents to sprout And in that is gratitude to Allah. 
because I believe that a community and a nation that wastes the talents that Allah gave is a community that is going to be held collectively responsible. Allah will say, I gave you a bak. What did you do with the bak that I gave you? Did you give that bak the opportunities to become bak or did you leave that bak as a street child being abused and being exploited and you know eventually killed as a young teen i gave you you know this talent and that talent and talents and intellects are the true wealth of a people so when we say i want students what you're saying is i want to invest the intellect in the proper way that Allah, ha- in the proper sunan, in the proper namus, in the proper order and nature that Allah has created to invest in talents and to invest in intellects, a, a properly constituted community, a moral society, a moral community, is one that furthers and enriches its intellects and its talents. Communities that snuff out and kill and waste and that marginalize and that suffocate and that kill off intellects and talents is an unjust community and it will never be blessed by Allah. Never. Mark my words. Until Muslims learn to, and and we'll see this, (laughs) the Quran tells us everything. The Quran tells us everything. Until Muslims learn to invest their resources so that they can express proper gratitude to Allah and not express proper gratitude by going to Umrah every year and going to Hajj every other year. That's haram. That's kufr. That's a waste of resources. No. Expressing gratitude by allowing the talents and the intellects and the richness that Allah, the bounties that Allah gave to properly flourish and thrive, they will never be blessed. The reason I went into this digression is that we don't value research and we don't value, we we, we keep reinventing the wheels. I mean, so many of us spend a lifetime studying and researching and they die and everything that they've researched and studied dies with them. And then we have to wait along until, you know, Allah gives us another talent that we again waste. It's really, it's obscene. It's obscene. So if in if we we do it in the proper format, then we would, but let's go back to to the to to the conclusions rather than the process of the research. Of, of what in my research I have become increasingly convinced of is that whether by revelation or by some form of ijma and consensus among the earliest Muslims, what I think is undeniable is that those Muslims, or if it's a prophet, and again, I could, you know, in a different setting, we can go through the entire evidence and you can make up your own mind as to whether you believe it's it was from the prophet or from the companions or the successors uh, as to the the names of the surah and so on. But it, it, who, 
whatever the process that resulted in the naming of the sewer, it seems to me that that process had a far more intimate and personal knowledge and even feeling for the moral message of the suwar than anything that came after it. Much of the tafasir had neglected or had not preserved that intimate process because there is a remarkable relationship between the actual message of the suwar and the name of the suwar. So, two parts to the key, the fatha and the name of the suwar. And that began then the journey that, you know, whether it's 30 years or 20 years of that I, ha- that I have with each surah in the Quran. And now, having said all of that, I might be completely wrong. I might have imagined this entire thing. I might have dreamt up everything. Um, But so what? The possibility, to to have the freedom of the possibility of error is as important as to have the freedom to do what's, to, to, to reach the right conclusions. You will make up your own mind whether in fact the message that I think each surah delivers is accurate, a true teacher would hope that a student would come along, that their own student, someone who's actually done their due diligence and their homework and studied everything they had to offer, would go beyond what they were able to achieve and would actually make contributions that were original and truly novel, but not fake originality, because we claim originality and novelty as a, as a result of, and of insecurity and anxiety and bad egos uh, that is far more super, that is more often superficial than real. Um, in fact, modern Muslims are obsessed with trying to position themselves as authorities over a tradition that they actually have not mastered. And that's because, again, we as a defeated people suffer very deep insecurities about ourselves, about our relationships to one another, about our, our, what defines us as a people, as a community, as a nation, as an ummah. And that manifests in all these social ailments, um, which is have, has us often posturing vis-a-vis one another and exhibiting false, what I've called in my writings, pietistic affectations, rather than any, than any concern with substance and contribution. Okay, let's take a short break, and then the surah that I'm going to discuss as my sample surah is Surah Al-Hadid, um, the so-called iron. Let's take a short break so I can use... Uh, Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Uh, t- turn on. T- t- no, you you keep quiet. Do have you noticed every time it says "Salam Alaikum," Doogie starts barking. He thinks you're talking to him. 
turn on your mics because I'm going to be soliciting your input. If, um, if you want to answer the question that I posed, just raise your hand. Okay, so Surah Al-Hadid, first, it's useful to note that the, the Surah is divided to, into five main sections. Um, and as we will see, the, the, the structure of so many of the chapters um, is similar in the in its in its division structure while the themes alternate so uh, for instance the the first part explains the glory of Allah the the second part positions what iman is the third part explains the consequences of iman and the consequences of a defective iman and a flawed iman um, the fourth part focuses on the hum humility of human beings and their relationship to their maker and then the final part, the fifth part, has a message to uh, non-Muslims, to particularly, specifically people of the book. We will find that in a lot of surahs, that alternates. So it could be that the message to the people of the book is the second part. And the consequences of the iman could become the fifth part. But this five-part structure, or six parts sometimes, is quite common throughout the chapters. <clears throat> and we already said that Surah Al-Hadid is among the five surahs in the Quran known as the Musabbihat. Uh, what that means is that they be begin with Tasbih. They begin with Sabbaha uh, Lillah or Subhanallah. Um, and we'll talk in a second about uh, the significance of that. Third, we've already noted that according to the vast majority of authorities, Surah Al-Hadid was revealed in Medina and with the reports that say that some parts of Surah Al-Hadid was revealed in Mecca much earlier, however, they, these verses were placed in Surah Al-Hadid by instruction. Finally, Surah Al-Hadid was among the last surah to be revealed in Medina. So it is a fairly late surah. And in fact, it is a, one of the group of surah, one of the group of chapters in the Quran that, in my opinion, prepared the Muslims for the departure of the Prophet there are a group of surah, and as we will see, well, and, and, you know, inshallah, if, if, we, if, we have, if Allah wills and we have the opportunity to undertake this entire journey, there are surah that anchored Muslim in 
the, in, in the Islamic faith, in reminding Muslims of the message of the Abrahamic prophets, the prophets before Muhammad and anchoring Muslims in the message of the Prophet there are surah that deal with the challenges of Mus that Muslims confront um, either their struggles in Mecca or their struggles in Medina. But there are a group of surah that carry a um, that seem to have a, as a primary purpose leaving Muslims with a legacy beyond a, a, a message that would anchor them and allow them the strength, the endurance um, to remain implanted in the Islamic message, especially after the death of the Prophet So in hindsight, knowing how late Surah Al-Hadid was revealed and knowing the message of Surah Al-Hadid, um, it carries a message that carries throughout the centuries, addressing us as to what we need in order to meet and deal with all that will come. Okay. And remember, we are not doing line by line. That's not the purpose of this uh, tafsir. But to, to get through the entire surah and to cover the main um, message of the surah. سَبَّحَ لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ لَهُ مُلْكُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ يُحْيِي وَيُمِيتِ وَهُوَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٌ The surah starts out with سَبَّحَ لِلَّهِ All that is in the heavens and the earth glorify Allah. When you have a surah that begins with Sabha Lillah, with invoking the theme of Tasbih, what do you think it demands of you as the reader? You're asking for input, right? Yeah. Okay, so he's asking for input. So if you have something, go ahead and raise your hand. I can tell you the name. Anyone? No takers? Sorry. Focus on the object that is going to come after the. This is Omar. I'm sorry, can you say it again? Because I need to repeat it. So I, I didn't quite understand what you said. Yeah. It's pointing the attention to the object that is about to come in pointing the book. The, the attention book. to the. Pointing attention to the object that's about to come in the first verse. Okay, and what is what did Serene? And sorry, and what did Serene? You were going to say something. Um, just gratitude and humility. Just that humility. Is that what you said? Gratitude and humility. Gratitude it's and humility. Acknowledging gratitude and humility. Yeah. 
both of you are, are correct. When, whenever you see a surah start with Subhanallah or Subhanallah, it's alerting you to the deliverance of a message that requires humility for understanding. But it also alerts you that it's going to deliver a message about your place in existence. So when I see Subhanallah or Subhanallah, I prepare to understand my place, to receive that message in which Allah is going to tell me something about my own nature. And we'll see this throughout the Quran with remarkable consistency. So whatever in the heavens and earth glorifies Allah and Allah is Aziz. Aziz word that connotes honor and nearness. And someone who is Aziz, it could even be translated as dear. Someone so who is dear to you. But not dear in the sense of just intimacy, but intimacy with honor. Al-Hakim, the, 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 the wise and all-knowing, aware of all that happens. The owner of the heavens, of the earth, and the one who has absolute ability over everything. I'm sorry. Okay. Can, can I just... Um, actually, I think the sound that's coming back this way, it's probably best if everyone can turn off their mics, and then if you raise your hand to make a comment, I'll call on you, and then you can turn on your mic and answer. Okay, so okay. I think that'll be easier for us to hear also. Okay. Now, then... This remarkable, uh, uh, you find uh, equaled in its uh, power, perhaps, the end of Surah Al-Hashr, um, where, where you find a, another uh, ayah that uh, is equal, in, perhaps of, of equal power, but this remarkable expression of what Allah is, what God is in relation to our existence. Allah is the first and the last. Al-Zahir, the external, al-Batin, the internal. Now, you could pause at that expression endlessly. Al-Zahir is the one who is manifested in, in, the, in, in all that is seen and experienced. But Al-Batin is the one who mani is manifested in all that is unseen and unexperienced. Nothing in existence is not pervaded by the divine. Nothing 
that we can experience in existence is not pervaded by the divine. And God is all-knowing. Now, note, when it comes to the end of the, the fourth verse, Al-Aya Rabi'ah, وَهُوَ مَعْكُمْ أَيْنَمَا كُنْتُمْ وَاللَّهُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ بَصِيرٌ Allah is not only existing in everything, whether belonging to the world of Alam al-Shahada, the, the world of the seen, but also to all that is belonging to the world of Ghaib, the world of the unseen. But Allah is with you wherever you are. وَهُوَ مَعْكُمْ أَيْنَمَا كُنْتُمْ A great deal, you can, if we were doing the line by line, by line tafsir, this would, I would pause a long time going through all the different reports and all the different, uh, uh, um, what the various mufassirun said about, but again, our purpose here is to understand what the entire surah is delivering to us. Allah is with you wherever you are. That begs the question for any rational human being, any human being who is engaged seriously with the text. Well, if Allah is with me with wherever I am, can I feel that existence? That's the most natural question that would come to you. Perhaps you will not have the means to understand the nature of that existence. So how is Allah with me wherever I am? But the one that you would hope you have access to or possibly can have access to is can I feel that existence? Can in fact I, my, can my consciousness experience that divine existence that I've been alerted to that in fact the divine is in everything, in, 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 in the entire creation. There is nothing in creation that is empty of the divine. But I myself, as a human being, Allah is with, with me wherever I am. And wherever I go. Okay. Then that message is further affirmed. Sorry. That message is further affirmed with Wahua Alimun Bidatu Surur. So that's section number one of Surah Al Hadith. That Allah is not only existing in everything. Allah is not only with you everywhere, but Allah also knows what dwells within yourself. That self that we as human beings guard and conceal. We are complicated beings, and as complicated beings we have a self. And to one extent or another, 
we have a complex relationship with that self. The self, at times, we confront it. Sometimes we're cognizant of it. Sometimes we're not cognizant of it. Sometimes we're honest with it. Sometimes we're not honest with it. Sometimes that self leads us to be honest with others, and sometimes we are not honest with others. But what all of us do, all of us do, is we guard that self. It is that part of us that tells us when we're hurt, when our feelings get hurt, when we're disappointed, when we're proud of ourselves, when we feel arrogant, when we feel superior to others, when we feel inferior to others but don't want to admit it, when we feel jealous but don't want to admit it, when we feel vindictive but admit it or not, either way, that self, well, Allah penetrates through this and that first section of Surah Al-Hadid tells us, well, you know that self, it is an open book to Allah. Allah reads it transparently. Okay. Then the second section. آمنوا بالله ورسوله وانفقوا مما جعلكم مستخلفين فيه فالذين آمنوا منكم وانفقوا لهم أجر كبير. هو الذي ينزل على عبده آيات بينات ليخرجكم من الظلمات إلى النور وإلى الله وإن الله بكم لرؤوف رحيم. The instruction that comes from the first section is so believe in Allah and the Prophet. That's not surprising. And the time that Surah Al-Hadid is revealed, Muslims are very familiar with that message that the answer to a lot of issues or a lot of narratives in the Quran is the key matter of belief. Belief in Allah and the Prophet. What is the function of that belief? Well, the function of the belief, Surah Al-Hadid tells us to what that belief does is that if you receive its clear signs, if you, in fact, are able to absorb and digest the message, it takes you from darkness to light. That central theme of darkness to light in many of the surah that begin with the subhanallah or subhanallah is a very common um, theme. And it's a, it, the, the place of light as enlightenment in the Quran is firmly established that that iman results in an enlightenment. 
we will see what Surah Al-Hadith says about this enlightenment and the consequences of false enlightenment, where you receive the message, but the light doesn't go off. That you can receive the Iman, but for whatever reason, your light bulb didn't go off and you didn't achieve enlightenment. Before going to that, though, when Allah says, Aminu, believe. Sorry, Rizwan, can, Rizwan, can you um, silence your, your mic? Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> at that point that Surah Al-Hadid is revealed, it reminds Muslims that their relationship to material possessions is one of what? What is your relationship to material possessions? Do you want to call on somebody? If, if anyone oh, wants to raise their hand, raise their, your hand and... Okay, I see it. Joe and then Cheyenne. So, go ahead, Joe. I'm alone. I'm alone. Temporary alone. Temporary alone. Okay. Cheyenne? I'm sorry, you're going to have to come closer to your mic because I can't hear you. Yeah, it, it, it's been entrusted. It's been entrusted. On Earth. On Earth. Yeah. You know, your relationship with material possession is a trust. In fact, you own nothing. And re remember, that is for a Meccan society, which was a commercial society, and a society that defined the, the, the way that the ego defined its worth was always in relation to private ownership, private property. It, those tribes that owned a lot of private property they boasted. They boasted in their poetry. They boasted in their mythology. They were claimed great honor. That was the nature of these Arab societies. A massive transformation takes place in Medina where in reality, any property that you think you own, you are simply entrusted with. Would it be fair to say that the Quran is alerting us that in fact your enlightenment, the project of achieving enlightenment, of having that light bulb go off within you through your Iman is impossible unless you understand that the nature, your relationship to material wealth is the relationship of a trustee, not an owner. Not just on the basis of Surah Al-Hadid, but on the basis of so many surah in the Quran, the answer is absolutely yes. That enlightenment, and indeed, being a real Muslim, if societies, through whatever values, it anchors and reaffirms and teaches and propagates, if these values are ones in which private ownership 
is defined in an unequivocal way as private ownership, rather than as a relationship of trust over property, old property. Uh, there are serious obstacles to that society being conducive to individuals achieving enlightenment. And again, in an intimate relationship with the Quran, you discover the extent, I'm, I'm not going to get into the verses that talk about those who spent before uh, the, um, the defeat of Mecca and those who spent after the defeat of Mecca. We, we know, if you look at, just scan very quickly, uh, verses um, 10. You notice that Surah Al-Hadid is talking about those who are spending of their wealth after Mecca was defeated and those who spent of their wealth before Mecca was re re defeated. The reason is, the reason is, is that those who spent of their wealth before Mecca was defeated, they were spending of their wealth at a time in which there is great political insecurity. They didn't know whether Muslims are going to end up victorious or not. So you are giving up your wealth, but you don't know whether Muslims are going to end up winners in, the, in, this, in this sort of showdown with Mecca. Uh, you could end up like Abu Bakr and like Khadija and like Osman ibn Affan and like so many Muslims who spent, sacrificed in their, their, their entire wealth for a cause that they weren't sure whether it's going to be victorious or not, as opposed to those, to those who are spending after the Mecca's defeat, their spending could have an element of prestige. You, you know that the major enemy, Muslims' arch enemy, has been defeated. And... Now, when you spend of your wealth, well, you know, you have to be very careful that you're not achieving bragging rights or elevating your prestige in society. That is the reason for that contrast between those who spend. Now, does that have a message beyond what occurred in Mecca? Well, yes, obviously. I mean, it, it, it's <laughs> alerting you that when you are spending, when when the, the way that your iman translates in a relationship where you don't see as the point of your existence is the accumulation of wealth and you don't see the point of your existence as or the point of your worth, as we will talk about, as defined by your wealth and you do it in a situation in which things are politically and economically insecure, that it doesn't escape God. Remember that God knows, is with us wherever we are and knows what is within the self and knows the types of ailments that inflict the self and the types of things that the self struggles with. Okay. Then, this, one of the most beautiful images of the Quran that we become 
cold towards because human beings, when they they become used to something, um, they lose the sense of excitement that they might have once felt. يَوْمَ تَرَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ يَسْعَى نُورُهُمْ بَيْنَ أَيْدِيهِمْ وَبِأَيْمَانِهِمْ بُشْرَاكُمْ الْيَوْمَ جَنَّاتٌ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا ذَلِكَ الْفَوْزُ الْعَظِيمُ By the way, this is just the Quran for the, for the seeing impaired, so it has big print. Um, that, that's why it's very big, if you, in case you're wondering. Um, so the day it moves to give you an image, to portray a picture, as to those who have purified the self in this temporal life and the light bulb of enlightenment has gone off, The natural consequence is that in the hereafter, which is the logical result of the here now, is that they emerge in the hereafter with their light between their hands. Now that's, when you talk about early Muslims and trying to decipher what struck early Muslims with... Um, uh, uh, um, you know, like a roller coaster, like, you know, just smashed them in, 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 in the face and the heart and, and, and shook them up. Well, this is one of those images that you actually, that expression, is eminently beautiful. Part of the dhikr that I talk about is that as you do dhikr, you imagine that image. When you imagine that image long enough, you will fall in love with it. You will fall in love with it to the point that you ache for it. Your being, your nerves, your muscles will ache for it. You will ache to have your light flow between your hands, walk, between your hands. And before you know it, you'll find yourself praying to Allah to have your light flow between your hands in the here now before the hereafter. Once you internalize that image, it becomes a part of you. You know, if you've ever, um, f uh, you know, I don't know when when you you know I I grew up in a different society, so I don't know, and in you know in in the society I grew up in, you could, of course, now things have changed in a lot of Muslim countries. They're they're no longer as polite as maybe they used to be. Uh, maybe I just grew up sheltered. I don't know, uh, but. But if you've ever, as a teenager, fallen in love with someone and you ache. You know, you, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't concentrate. You go walking around just hoping to run into them just to say, hello, you know, just to get a little smile and that's it. 
No, of course. So I don't know. People here are are, are just far more aggressive, and yeah, I I don't know if they would be happy with just hello. But anyway, it, well, the type of aching I'm talking about for the light yes is that type of aching. Your 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 nerves, your muscles actually hurt, and but. It cannot be achieved without it. the process of dhikr. When I say the dhikr is associated with each surah, which each surah in the Quran, there is a related dhikr to it. You can only, that surah can only open up its secrets to you and become a part of you only if you accompany it with the dhikr is necessary for each surah. And for Surah Al-Hadid, that's part of that zikr. I will tell you the other part of the zikr in, in, a, in a little bit. Okay. Now, at the same time that it tells you that those who truly understand what does it mean that in, in all existence glorifies God? That God is everywhere and in everything. And God is the zahir and the bottom. And that God is with you wherever you are. And that God knows the self. And that the self is transparent before God. And those who are able to have the light bulb of Iman go off within them so that the natural consequence, it has concrete results. And the concrete results is that their relationship to material wealth is one in which their value and their worth is not defined by material worth. Their place in society, whether they feel they are successful or not successful, is not defined by material worlds. Whether they think that someone is a good partner in marriage or not good partner in marriage is not defined by material wealth. Whether they think that they should be proud of themselves because they feed the poor or not feed the poor is not defined by material wealth, but by the relationship as a trustee the, the result of that, what is Iman that doesn't translate into a relationship uh, with material wealth where it's a defective Iman? It is not the Iman, the type that will have the light flow between your hands and the hereafter. It contrasts to that immediately. It contrasts that picture to those who have failed. Not the kuffar, not the mushrikeen, not the unbelievers and not the polytheists, but who? The munafiqeen, the, the, the hypocrites. And here the hypocrites, sometimes the Quran, when it talks about hypocrites, it refers to the hypocrites of, of Medina, the, the class of people that either converted nominally for social reasons or political reasons, or that didn't convert at all and remained as an opposition party to 
the Prophet Muhammad in Medina throughout his lifetime. Sometimes, however, when the Quran talks about the hypocrites, it's not necessarily referring to these to this class of people, but referring to, if you will, the existential hypocrites. And the existential hypocrites are those who say that we are aware of Allah as glorified by existence, as the zahir and the batin, as everywhere and so on, but it doesn't have a concrete translation. It doesn't translate into a relationship with material belongings and material things as that of a trustee with a trust rather than an owner with ownership. Okay. Now, Ayah 16 takes us to classic of the Quranic style. I said that it, it moves in sections. And each section has its mood. And as a reader, your heart shifts with every... Uh, you know how when you're driving a stick shift... I, I don't know how to drive a stick shift, but from what I've seen people do. You know, they, they, they shift gears and stuff like that. Well, it, it shifts gears with you. And it gives you that remarkable message and remarkable picture. أَلَمْ يَأْنِي لِلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَنْ تَخْشَعَ قُلُوبُهُمْ لِذِكْرِ اللَّهِ وَمَا نَزَّلَ مِنَ الْحَقِّ وَلَا يَكُونُ كَالَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابَ مِنْ قَبْلُ فَطَالَ عَلَيْهِمُ الْأَمَدْ فَقَصَتْ قُلُوبُهُمْ وَكَثِيرًا مِنْهُمْ فَاسِقُونَ Okay. أَلَمْ يَأْنِي Isn't it time isn't it time for those who have believed, for the believers, to humble their hearts before Allah and not be like those who have received the message, وَطَالَ عَلَيْهُمُ الْأَمَدْ What does this mean? There are those who received the message. At one time, they were excited about the message. Their hearts fluttered. They, their eyes teared up. They felt something. But as monotony sets in, and as habit sets in, the excitement and the zeal is gone. وَطَالَ عَلَيْهُمُ الْأَمَدْ is an expression that literally translates into you got used to it. it. Things have become pro forma. What happens when things become pro forma and habitual? You pray because you're used to praying, but you hardly concentrate in prayer anymore. You, your heart doesn't move in prayer, or it moves very little, if, if anything. You, you just get prayer out of the way. That amazing message, the Quran is talking 
to the believers at the time of the Prophet And who are the believers at the time of the Prophet They're the companions. The companions of the Prophet. And it's telling them, isn't it time that your hearts humble themselves to the one and only? If you are living with the Quran, this should give you pause. Wait, the companions of the Prophet humble themselves to the remembrance of Allah? Well, if that's what it's telling, if that's what it's saying to the companions, what would it say to me? The companions are being asked to humble themselves to Allah? And it's saying, isn't it time? Now, of course, if you look in the books of tradition, it tells you that the reason for this surah is that some believers complained about being bored. And they went to the Prophet and said, we're bored. Uh, can we do something entertaining? That report as to the occasion for revelation is not of very high authenticity. So we can't say that that's the occasion for revelation. But what we can say is that clearly the Quran is talking to a people that Allah knows are going to be without the Prophet very soon. And being without the Prophet is going to present them with a challenge. And what is that challenge that is they're going to be presented with? Is that they're going to be like the other people of the book. Very soon, Muslims are going to be just like Christians and Jews. Their Prophet is no longer with them. And when your Prophet is no longer with you, your incentive system is gone. Your, your, your energetic, your energizer is no longer there. You have to rely on yourself. And that is why that harsh but beautifully subtle reminder, you know, it's time to grow up. Although Allah doesn't tell them at that moment, but Allah tells them, Allah doesn't tell them that the Prophet in a, in, a, in a year or two is going to not going to be there anymore. Depending on what report we take as to when Surah Al-Hadid was revealed. But it was clearly either a year or two before the death of the Prophet. But it, it, it's time that you look back into these hearts and calibrate your Iman and prepare it for the big challenge. And the big challenge is not shaitan coming to you. It's not the attack of the Romans or the, the Byzantine Empire. The big challenge is habit and boredom. In other words, the ailments of the self, what the self is. Light is the energy. When you, you can't say a bored person carries light. 
In, in fact, if you read auras, one of the first things you notice is that the aura of a bored human being dims. The aura of an unbored human being glows. When Allah tells us the light flowing between your hands, it is talking about those who led the struggle of keeping that faith alive and active. The, when, what happens when habit comes in and when you do things out of habit and where you are no longer emotionally engaged, even if you are intellectually convinced, hypocrisy sets in. That's how a hypocrite is formed. Okay. Then that reminder that Allah has given us elsewhere in the Quran but underscores in Surah Al-Hadid اعلموا أنما الحياة الدنيا لعب ولهو وزينة وتفاخر بينكم وتكاثر في الأموال كمثل غيب أعجب الكفار نباته ثم يهيج فتراه مصفرا ثم يكون حطاما وفي الآخرة عذاب شديد ومغفرة من الله ورضوان وما الحياة الدنيا إلا متاع الغرور So this is ayah number 20 and Allah reminds us remember that your life on this earth is essentially frivolous you all the the, the money you earn all the bragging, all the competing over material wealth, all of that is meaningless for what Allah considers the real life. The Quran underscores again and again that this life that we live is not a real life. And the light, that light bulb that I'm talking about that goes off it is impossible for it to go off unless you internalize. A lot of us, many of us say we believe. We believe in that we will be resurrected and, and be held to account. But we don't really believe that this life is not the real life and that the real life, the one that actually matters, is the hereafter. But that true iman, that type of iman that was, can, can withstand boredom and habit and frivolity and the, 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 the snares of the ego and the snares of arrogance and the snares of materiality, that iman needs to be anchored in the belief that the real life is the hereafter and not this one. Okay, now notice in all of this, as again, this is classic of Quranic style, Allah hasn't yet told us the core message of Surah Al-Hadid. All of this is like the discourse you are reading in a chapter that is leading up to the main point.
all of this is preparing you for the delivery of the critical message and the main point. Then, as if Allah comforts us, Allah knows that it's much easier to say the real life is the one that will come later, not this one. And why is it difficult? Because when we are, when we suffer in this life, it's very hard on us. When we lose a child, it's very hard to say, well, it really doesn't matter because this is not the real life. When we lose our wealth, when we fail in, an, in our dreams, when we lose a loved one, um, when we go through a divorce, when any of the disasters and calamities that befall on, on us on the, in this life, it's very hard on us. Now notice, and I've said this before many times, but notice how many children the Prophet ﷺ left, I mean lost. And try to put yourself in the Prophet's shoes. Could you lose that many children and still be the type of human being that Surah Al-Hadid wants you to be? Just so to keep things in perspective, that as you go through the difficulties of life, you are cognizant of the fact that You are given a test, but it is a test that is measured. A test that could be much harder. Then Allah gives us this statement, which unfortunately a lot of Muslims, as in modern theology, come to exploit in many different ways. This is, uh, I'm now uh, um, at verse 22-23. ما أصاب من مصيبة في الأرض ولا في أنفسكم إلا في كتاب من قبل أن نبرأها إن ذلك إن ذلك على الله يسير لكي لا تأسوا على ما فاتكم ولا تفرحوا بما آتاكم والله لا يحب كل كل مختال فخور. No that Whatever calamity befalls you on, in your world, that it was ordained by Allah. It was decreed. Why does Allah want us to know this? And if you pay attention to the, 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 the text, and it's fascinating, so that you are you neither experience devastating sorrow over what you lose, but that you also don't feel exuberance and arrogance as to what you earn. So you know when you make when when 
if you think that any of it, whether the loss or gain, is outside the purview of the divine, you're sorely mistaken. Both the extreme in sorrow, depression, devastation, or the type of hubris that you often encounter with rich people and the type of arrogance, if you've ever been around Islamic centers and you've stuck around medical doctors uh, who drive expensive Mercedes and stuff like that, their, their arrogant attitudes really get to you, or at least they get to me. I don't like being around them after a very short period of time. They're just their haughtiness, as if they're God's gift to the world, just because they make a lot of money. Well, you know, Muslims like to cite this verse in some type of fatalistic belief in predestination, but this is not what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying is that it is ordained. But when was it ordained? Was it ordained from the time of your birth? Not necessarily. That's not what it says. It could have been ordained as a result consequences of your choices. So if you imagine one of these interactive games, what do you call them? Um, the interactive video games. Oh, yeah. Um, RPG? RPG role-playing role game. Yeah, role-playing. You know, you, you make a choice, and there are consequences to that choice. You make a different choice, there are consequences of choice. Is the program written for every choice and consequences? Absolutely. Does the programmer know what the consequences will be for each choice? Absolutely. But you make the choice. So when we cite this verse for some belief, type of you know, fatalistic, uh, yeah, no, it wasn't necessarily ordained from the moment of your creation. I believe that ordination and destination is an ongoing thing. That is why Allah is with us. Because Allah is constantly creating our destiny. Some things are destined from, from early on, like when we're going to die. I mean, that's what, I, that's what the evidence had led me to believe. Our, our, our moment of death or some other things. Um, some theologians like to believe that you're, who you're going to marry is preordained at the time of your birth. I don't believe that. You know, I'm, I guess I'm not a romantic in that sense. <laughs> Um, but uh, anyway, because I, I want to move on, because Surat al-Hadid, we, we even, we're all leading up to the critical point. So it's Allah as if patting you on the back, at the same time warning you, say, you know, if it helps you handle the, the challenges of life on this earth by remembering that nothing unfolds despite Allah's will. Nothing occurs while Allah was oblivious or unattentive. Allah could have saved you from the consequences of your actions, but Allah chose not to. Allah could have 
prevented that infection from befalling you. But if Allah allows it to happen, Allah has willed it. At the same time, be very careful not to turn that act of kindness where I am comforting you for into arrogance and hubris because you believe that somehow you were entitled to be born rich and be rich and live rich or powerful or from an elite family or from a privileged family or, or whatever other privileges. Uh, you know, again, if in, in societies, you know, when I see very wealthy people, the way they treat servants or the help in at, home, at their homes, um, in the society I grew up with, you, you see the type of hubris that this, that this and other surah in the Quran speaks about. When it says, that expression, is that arrogant, you know, it's as if their, their head is, is as if a peacock. Um, if you try to draw it into an image, it's it, the image of a peacock comes to mind. Um, okay. Now, Ayah 25. لَقَدْ أَرْسَلْنَا رُسُلَنَا بِالْبَيِّنَاتِ وَأَنْزَلْنَا مَعَهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْمِيزَانَ لِيَقُومَ النَّاسُ بِالْقِسْطِ وَأَنْزَلْنَا الْحَدِيدَ فِيهِ بَأْسٌ شَدِيدٌ وَمَنَافِعُ لِلنَّاسِ وَلْيَعْلَمَ اللَّهُ مَنْ يَنْصُرَهُ وَرُسُلُهُ بِالْغَيْبِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَوِيًّا عَزِيزٌ إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَوِيٌّ عَزِيزٌ Sorry. Okay. Now, we get to the, the, the main theme of Surah Al-Hadid. So, Having taken you in this journey, Allah then reminds you as to the critical role of the message that Allah has entrusted to you. We've sent the messengers with the book. For us, this is the book. With the book and the balance. Why? So people So that people will achieve justice. And then it tells you, and we've sent iron that is has numerous uses for human beings, and it is very strong. If you are living with the Quran, this then gives you pause. We've sent the messengers with the book and the mizan and the balance. Is this a material balance? Is this a physical balance? Is it something that we can actually touch and feel? No. It's metaphysical. 
So what is that balance? When, when Surah Al-Hadith is telling us that Allah has sent the messengers with a book and a balance, it unpacks folds of meaning. The balance is the balance that so that Al-Hadith itself will alert us to in a second. The balance that is within, the type of balance that is necessary for a strong, stable, enlightened Muslim who is a believer who will be able to handle the challenge of Islam after the Prophet is gone, after becoming people of the book. Now, this challenge is, is enormous because your obligation, as the Quran tells us repeatedly, is to establish justice, enlightenment, the problem with the lack of justice, the problem with the absence of justice in society is that it breeds hypocrisy in the, in the self. An unjust society is a society that is a cesspool full of hypocrisy. One of the main things that oppression and despotism and lack of justice does is that it teaches human beings to be two-faced or multi-faced in order to survive and to get ahead. Because you can't trust the consequences. And because you can't trust, you can't trust that if you're truthful, that you're not going to unfairly suffer. You can't trust if you're sincere, that you're not going to be unfairly punished. You can't trust that if you speak your mind that you're not going to be oppressed. You can't trust that if you spend in, in the way of God that you're not going to be punished for being generous. You can't trust. And when you can't trust, you learn hypocrisy. You learn to lie. And throughout the Quran, the Quran instills in us the relationship between the mizan, the balance, and justice. And uh, as believers, the pursuit of justice is not something that is up to compromise. Whether we achieve justice or not, as another surah teaches us, which inshallah, if, we, if this project comes to be, we'll talk about. Whether we achieve justice or not, that's, that's not our business. That's God's business. And there's another surah that carries that message. But the pursuit of justice is something that is core. Now, immediately, as the Quran, Quran often does, it surprises us with relationships that, and by the way, and the Bible does that even to a greater extent, especially the New Testament, the, the use of parables and metaphors, and it leaves it up to you to reflect on it and, ref, and work out the parable. 
the Quran does it in a, to a far less extent, and the Quran does it in a far more um, logical way. I think is the way to put it. Right after it tells us, reminds us of iman and the mizan, the balance and justice. Then it tells us that, and Allah has sent iron. And that iron is strong. And so that Allah will know who will come to the aid of the true message. Now, of course, a superficial interpretation of this would say, well, it mentions iron because you make weapons out of iron. And what it's talking about is that you have an obligation to establish the balance. The balance is within the self. You have an obligation to establish external justice, and that's qist. Uh, and then it mentions iron to also remind Muslims of weapons. But that's unsatisfactory at so many levels. Because when the Quran wants to remind Muslims of warfare and battles and weapons, it does so. It doesn't need to just mention iron. And then, وَلْيَعْلَمَ اللَّهُ مَنْ يَنْصُرُهُ وَرُسَلَهُ بِالْغَيْبِ we can pause for a long time as to just, just that expression, بالغيب, but for the interest of time, I won't. Rather, and especially the fact that this entire surah is called al-Hadid, that our the very early Muslims who encountered the surah, who absorbed the surah, interacted with the surah, and as we said, whether it was named by the Prophet or by the earliest generation of Muslims, you know, either case, that they saw the message, the message of the Hadith as core. What I submit to you it is talking about, and the reason that Surah Al Hadid is Surah Al Hadid. Al-Hadid is quite remarkable because it is an essential component in creation, not just to build weapons or to create structures, but within us as human beings is a percentage of iron. The absence of the iron would be disastrous. You increase the amount of iron, even a little bit beyond the limits would be disastrous. That iron is also remarkable because it's fluorescent. 
it, it, if you shine upon it the right light, it glows. And as we'll see in, a, in, in, in the continuation of the surah, the, the surah al-hadith goes back to the theme of light. But, to put it bluntly, when it talks about iron, it is invoking in us what we moderns call Iron Man. Is there an Iron Man like a Superman or a... There is an Iron Man? Yeah? <laughs> so, who, who is the Iron Human Being? We, we, put, we don't want Iron Man. We want the Iron Human Being because it's, it applies to man and woman. Go back to everything that Surah Al-Hadid reminded you of. The core of your challenge is the Mizan. The core of your challenge is that balance. The balance where you become cognizant, not just a believer, not just someone who says, I'm a Muslim, not just someone who does your ibadat, but someone who is cognizant of what it means for God to be with you wherever you are. God, it's someone who is cognizant that the, all material things don't belong to you or belong to anyone. They belong to God. And that you are entrusted. You are simply a trustee, whether it's a forest, a river, the mountains, or money. You are a trustee. And you will be held to account for all of us will be held responsible for what we've done with that. What we've done with this trust that was entrusted to us. The balance requires a vigilant process of resisting hypocrisy within the self. The hypocrisy that comes out of boredom and, habitu and habitualism or habit. The hypocrisy that comes from repetition and loss of perspective. To, as Allah tells you, أَلَمْ يَأْنِي Isn't it time for those who have believed, not for the kuffar, but for those who have believed to humble their hearts in order to guard against the hypocrisy. As a mu'min, you must constantly and vigilantly humble your heart towards that that you need to humble your heart towards and understand that with the absence when the Prophet ﷺ was in our midst, it is the Prophet ﷺ who achieved justice. We didn't need to worry about it. All we needed to go is to go to the Prophet. Rasulullah, this happened and that happened. What do we do about it? And this is precisely what we see throughout the Sunnah, is that they constantly went to him with their problems. But once he's gone, the obligation of justice becomes upon you all. And that becomes the challenge, the collective challenge. And that, as some theologians have put it, is the 
challenge of the iron challenge. And um, I'm trying to remember the Arabic. The iron challenge. Yeah, but there is something else that has always struck me about this surah. Iron is also amazing because it is very strong, but unlike rocks, for instance, once seared with heat, it can also be malleable and adaptable. You can shape it. And I've always, in Surah Al-Hadid, been struck by its reminder about calamities. When calamities come, it is like the fire that melts iron and shapes it. There are two types of believers. There are those that who are inflicted with calamity and they are not like iron, they are like rocks. Heat breaks them. They lose, they go through hardship. Why did Allah do this to me? I don't know why Allah has done this to me. I don't know if I'm a believer anymore. They are not like hadid. They are like rocks. Heat breaks them. But there are those believers who heat remolds them. They are strong, but they're a different shape. But it also alerts me to another thing. Another property of iron is the necessity of adaptability. If you are a believer and you confront challenges and you are unable to bend and mold yourself, you will not achieve the mizan, the balance, and you will not achieve qust, you will not achieve justice. So many believers, when they are confronted with challenges, they want to fall on the dogma that they're comfortable with. They don't want to reshape anything because it's difficult. It's difficult to confront people. It's difficult to be unpopular. It's difficult for people to criticize you. It's difficult for people to say you're an outlier. It's difficult it's to, but to be truly of iron property, you need to be strong, but you also need to be adaptable. Then Allah, as often Allah does, Allah repeatedly invokes, reminds us time and time again that remember, this message that I'm giving you, Muslims don't feel all superior and haughty. You're, this whole theme of the chosen people it doesn't drive, it doesn't work. This is the same message that I've given the other prophets. Allah's message doesn't change. Allah's message to Ibrahim and Musa السلام, and Isa and the prophets as the Quran repeatedly reminds us. Don't, however, don't be like those who is tala alayhim al-amad. Don't be like those who 
became used to, accustomed, out of habit and repetition, and lost the zeal and lost the energy and lost the light, lost the excitement. Because then you become like the earlier people of the book who have lost the path. And so in classic Quranic style, it, after delivering the main message, it shifts again to reminding us that this is a message of other prophets. However, we come to Ayah 28. The return to the theme of light. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, ittaqullah wa aminu bi rasoolihi yu'tikum kiflayni min rahmatihi wa yaj'ala lakum nooran tamshuna bihi wa yaghfira lakum wallahu ghafoorur rahim. People, you believers, ittaqullah, fear God, be cognizant of God. Taqwa doesn't really translate into fear because taqwa Allah could also be cognizant of God out of love. You know, it's being cognizant of God in everything you do. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, taqullah. Have taqwa towards Allah and believe in the Prophet. This is a signifier, a signifier to the entire message. When Allah says, believe in Allah and the Prophet, Allah is telling us the Islamic message. It's a signifier. Okay, يُؤْتِكُمْ كِفْلَيْنِ مِنْ رَحْمَتِهِ وَيَجْعَلَ لَكُمْ نُورًا تَمْشُونَ بِهِ وَيَغْفِرَ لَكُمْ There is, you know, there are things that seeped in the Islamic message or the Islamic tradition that should not have seeped into the Islamic tradition. But when you read the books, um, what it tells you about يُؤْتِكُمْ كِفْلَيْنِ مِنْ رَحْمَتِهِ will give you double the reward in, of Allah's mercy. It tells you that there was... Uh, I'm sort of even a little embarrassed about telling you the story because it's, it's, it's so apparently problematic, it's so obviously problematic, that there was a group, of, uh, 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 a group of Christians and Jews who came to Medina and then they did something, they, gave, they donated money. And the, the uh, Prophet told, told them, you will have a reward for your money. And then some Muslims became jealous that, well, you know, if uh, they're Christians and Jews and they're going to get the same reward as us. So the Quran was revealed saying, يُؤْتِكُمْ kiflaini means Allah will give you double the reward. And then Muslims were happy. Uh, that report is completely unauthentic. And I mean... One other than a weak transmission, I believe it's it's a complete fabrication. Uh, that's not the the way that the Quran revealed. That's not the way that the Quran addressed events. That's not, that just it's so. We could go into a whole hour of discussing all the problems with that report, but you know. So just in case you know, because you always have Muslims whose egos are threatened by any other Muslim who says they. They teach anything, and and immediately the minute you tell them, well, we've learned this, they tell you, oh well, you know, that's not, that's all wrong. Let me tell you the the real deal. 
that's because we are an insecure people and we are an insecure people because we are a defeated people. So we are always to, trying to up one another. We are always trying to prove that we are not uh, marginalized by the other. And until we learn to stop being such a defeated people, the beauty of the Quran is not going to overtake our hearts because the Quran eschews ugliness. The Quran doesn't coexist with ugliness. When it, when it invades your heart, the minute ugliness enters your heart, the minute the true enlightenment of the Quran runs away and it, it leaves you despondent and lost. So what is... Allah's telling us here. If Allah is not saying, oh, you'll be, you know, teasing, or Allah is not sticking the proverbial tongue at Christians and Jews and saying, Muslims will get twice what you guys get, which we've rejected that narrative, alhamdulillah. Um, Allah will give you not double the, the, the mercy, but Allah will give you a, a twice manifested mercy. Twice manifested where? Where are the two mercies that will manifest if you truly believe and you truly become like the Hadid, like that that, that metaphor of the iron human being. The mercy manifested in this world and the hereafter. Now, how does that mercy manifest in this world and in the hereafter? Nuran tamshuna bihi, a light that will manifest in this world and in the hereafter. This is when Surah Al-Hadid penetrates your heart, the state it leaves you in. And every Surah, again, as I said, for this Hanukkah, my other Hanukkah, yes, I want intellectuals. I want people who got high scores and high uh, GPAs. For this Hanukkah, I don't care about your GPA. I don't care about your GRE. I don't care about your uh, LSAT. Uh, I don't want your high scores. I would much rather have a pure heart than a smart person. Because the way that Surah Al-Hadid leaves you is, Allah, am I the iron? Am I an iron human being? Am I balanced? Do I have the light? I ache for the light. I want the light. I covet the light. Because I know the light is you. And this is the way And this is the way 
that I see you when you are with me wherever I go. That's how it all comes. When I have the light flowing between my hands, I see you wherever I go. And that, my brothers and sisters, is Surah Al-Hadith. Now, remember that this is a pilot episode. <laughs> a, uh, a prototype. My dream is to do what I've done here with all the sword of the Quran. Because over 30 years, I've developed Over 30 years, I've developed a relationship with each surah of the Quran. If this is not for you, absolutely. If this is not what your heart feels and this is not what your soul covets, go by all means. If this is something that you find meaningful and you want that type of relationship, and you are searching for a possible past, at least the past that I've carved, then I invite you to share it with me for whatever it's worth. My dream, because I do believe, and Allahu Alam, Allah knows best, but I do believe that this is, for instance, what Surah Al-Hadid is meant to convey. As far as my, as far as I know, this is what the divine intent is, and Allah does what Allah wishes. My hope is to do it with the entire Quran, and my hope is to train a few people with the entire process of the unfolding, unfolding, so that they know the Quran in that type of intimate, personal relationship that they will never be able to undo once it becomes a part of your cellular structure, once it becomes a part of your DNA, it is very difficult to undo. And, you know, all the types of what used to be smart questions for me when I was 20 years old, you know, the type of questions you hear from kids all the time nowadays, uh, especially in the age of Islamophobia, we appear so remote and so silly and so pedantic and that you often wonder like how the hell did I actually take these questions seriously once upon a time in my life um, how the hell did they matter so much okay let's let's take a five minutes and then take questions so think of questions in the five minutes and the platform is yours.